Hello, Ice Coffee listeners. Two episodes in one month. Who ever thought people could live at this speed? But I've been looking forward to addressing the ballad of Lester and Bagshaw ever since the idea of making this series first came to me. I'm really excited that I'm finally underway on this episode. Antarctic veteran and co-founder of the Scott Polar Institute, Frank Debenham, who had to press hard to get the man to put pen to paper in accounting his time at Waterboat Point, wrote in the foreword of Thomas Bagshaw's book, Two Men in the Antarctic, that the work is about two men who possessed that quality which was so annoying to the great Napoleon of not having the sense to know when they were defeated. Anywhere other than Britain and its dominions of the era, this might read as the most backhanded of damnings with faint praise. But Debenham sincerely thought very highly of the author and the companion with whom he spent a winter at 64 degrees south. While the expedition they sailed south with received stout refusals to requests for financial support or endorsement from almost everyone that might be expected to demonstrate enthusiasm for British endeavours in the south, Antarctic veterans warmed to the two young men, Thomas Bagshaw and Maxime Lester, who spent a year collecting data on a tiny spit of land on the western shores of the Antarctic Peninsula. Hubert Wilkins was demobilising from his war work when he met Dr John Lachlan Cope, veteran of the ITAE Ross Sea Party, also demobbing from his wartime service in the Royal Navy in London. With Wilkins' ideas for Antarctic weather stations dismissed as impossible by the Royal Meteorological Society on the grounds that with so much of Antarctica yet unexplored, they couldn't commit resources to establishing met stations there, and with the Royal Navy dismissing his idea to use a captured German Zeppelin to explore Arctic coastlines on the ground that they thought it dangerous to the point of foolhardy, and with the dead Count Zeppelin's successor, Hugo Eckner, refusing to manufacture him a bespoke Zeppelin on the grounds that its disappearance might constitute bad publicity for a company already bogged down under the bad publicity engendered by manufacturing the airships used to bomb London, Cope convinced Wilkins they should start an expedition which offered scope for the Australian to fulfil his ambitions to utilise aviation to explore polar regions, a concept Wilkins came to as the solution to the problem of finding sites for his long-dreamt-of meteorological stations. During his peregrinations with Stephenson, Wilkins began advocating for the British Imperial Antarctic Expedition to potential backers and recruits. Recall that Wilkins' interest in polar regions arose from the droughts that knocked his family farm into the weeds, and his efforts at high latitudes always sought means by which his personal ambition to help farmers better weather the weather might be furthered. Wilkins visited William McKinley, last mentioned in episode 52 as one of Stephenson's most vocal detractors, after his experiences aboard the Carluk. McKinley, convalescing from wounds received during the war, was buoyed at the prospect of travelling with Wilkins again, but couldn't accept the invitation due to the state of his badly damaged leg. I picked up a copy of McKinley's memoir about his time aboard the Carluk and wish I'd had it to hand when writing my notes for episode 52. Among the many things I might have mentioned that further cross-linked Stephenson's expedition with Antarctic history was that McKinley joined Stephenson as meteorologist and mathematician on the recommendation of William Spears Bruce, increasing McKinley's stock on account of my measure of Bruce's own worth. I can't wait to hook into McKinley's account, written to write the record left behind by Stephenson, 
and published on the encouragement of Icelandic journalist Magnus Magnusson. Man. So many of the people I respect from polar history were reticent to publish their work. You don't see that sort of reluctance from the leaders, or the sociopaths, or the sociopathic leaders. Something doesn't fit here. I read in a biography of Wilkins that he was a vehement detractor of Robert Bartlett, blaming the captain of the Carluke for the deaths that occurred during Stephenson's expedition, having ignored Stephenson's advice on how to survive in the north. If that's the case, I don't understand how Wilkins and McKinley could meet on the good terms recounted in my other biography of Wilkins, seeing as McKinley placed the blame squarely on Stephenson's poor planning and decisions. Anywho, Wilkins headed home to Australia where, after decommissioning to civilian status, his wartime boss, Charles Bean, employed him to help curate the photographs accumulated under his leadership. Wilkins interspersed his time in the collection with lectures to try to drum up support for Cope's expedition as a means to improve Australian weather forecasting. Farmers, not the most receptive audience for lectures at the best of times, didn't think much of Wilkins' ideas and didn't stump up any funding for newfangled aeroplanes to go to faraway places to tell them what to do. We've farmed these lands for three generations and what was good enough for my granddaddy is good enough for... Hey, where'd all my topsoil go? Australian farming is borderline oxymoronic, and the ancient, nutrient-poor soil and the southern oscillation-dictated rain cycles ensured that anyone still growing food in Australia a hundred years on is doing so because they're extremely savvy, both in terms of farming and business. In Wilkins' day, though, they just wrote him off as a crank. Turns out they were correct not to invest in Cope's expedition, but for the wrong reasons. Cope was touting his project to anyone who would sit still long enough for him to gabble out his spiel, and a few of the big players in past polar expeditions were paying him heed. James Wordy thought the project sounded meritorious and that Wilkins' involvement added a degree of credibility, but was unable to agree to join as he was already heading to Spitsbergen with William Spears Bruce. Sir Francis' young husband, who in addition to sounding like a character in a Monty Python sketch was president of the Royal Geographic Society, felt so unimpressed by Cope and his ideas that the minutes of the meeting record that the society finds itself unable to approve his plans or leadership or to give his proposed expedition its countenance and support. When James Wordy heard of this rebuff, he figured he was well out of it and when he later learnt of what actually happened under Cope's leadership in the South, he realised exactly the calibre of the bullet he'd dodged by being busy. Cope's approach to the Royal Aeronautical Society outlined a vast enterprise of two ships launching six aircraft and carrying personnel and equipment for a four-year stay and establishing permanent stations. It would be another 30 years before anyone pulled this scale of expedition off successfully, but Cope's vision grew or shrank to fit what he perceived as the desires of his audience, leaving behind so many conflicting accounts of how many men, dogs, aircraft and vessels might be involved that it's impossible to pin down what the essence of the BIAE comprised in his mind. It seems, get back to Antarctica was the only constant, and I can sympathise with that to some extent, though I'd never take responsibility for anyone else's welfare for that goal alone. Cope did exactly that, and while I can't pass his motives, I don't have a lot of respect for the outcomes.
In his account of a much later attempt to cross under the North Pole by submarine, Wilkins recalled that Cope was denounced because of his private life to the leading scientific societies, who refused to support him for that, and perhaps for other reasons. I don't care about a person's private life, but early 20th century Britain did. But Wilkins' mention of other reasons leaves me hanging. Was it the apparent mental health issues Cope experienced during his time in the Ross Sea? I'd challenge anyone to live through what Shackleton's Ross Sea party went through and not come out toasty as fuck at the far end, but Cope seemed to cope least well with the circumstances. With Wilkins' diaries and notes unavailable because his family won't let anyone near them, more about this in the future, we may never know. Cope sent word to Wilkins that the proposed purpose-built 450-ton vessel was no longer on the cards, and that they would sail south from Montevideo with the whaling fleets. No aircraft, no large contingent of personnel. In their place, two volunteers, though I have found one very well-resourced paper that indicates the pair expected to get paid for their efforts. 22-year-old Lieutenant Maxime Lester, Royal Navy Reservist, who served in the Canadian and the Royal Navy during the war, and who was serving as second mate aboard a tramp steamer when he signed on with the BIAE, who would carry out survey work, and Thomas Bagshaw, 19-year-old Cambridge geology student, who took leave of his studies to geologise for the expedition. Wilkins wanted to pull the pin and go home to an engineering position on offer in Adelaide, but Cope, citing the work they might perform in carrying forward Nordenkeld's efforts in the Weddell Sea, and wheedling for all he was worth in a rapid-fire series of cables, convinced the Australian to stay on. Wilkins' writing never specifies what happened to the money Cope and Wilkins had raised, but it doesn't appear to have been spent entirely on the very limited stock of equipment, instruments and food that ended up travelling south with the BIAE. Even having acknowledged to his two IC that things were not going to plan, Cope continued to trumpet the expedition as a huge undertaking. In New York, he heralded his project as the largest exploring expedition and the one from which the greatest results are expected. Figures of $750,000 funding, a fleet of five ships and 120 men were bandied about. Perhaps Cope thought that he was in charge of the whaling fleet he was relying on to get him south. All lies, either way. The reports in the New York papers came to light in Britain, prompting the RGS to publish It is desirable to repeat for public information that this self-styled British Imperial Antarctic Expedition of a few men is not in any way whatever approved or supported by the Royal Geographical Society. When Wilkins met Cope in Montevideo, the last of the expedition money was already spent purchasing dogs. Bagshaw wrote that the dogs were collected in the Falklands, and the doctor was rapidly ramping up debts. When you take dogs to high latitudes to pull you and your sledges around, you have some options. You can plump for Greenland Huskies, hulking, broad-shouldered brutes of animals able to pull heavy loads long distances, or you can opt for Alaskan Huskies, lean and light and fast, and a number of breeds and mixtures between, taking in Samoyed, Malamute and so on. I don't know what the fuck Cope managed to purchase, but they looked nothing like any dog anyone ever did anything useful with, 
and it turns out the BIAE saw the breed hold to that standard. I'll append a picture of one of the Motley Muttleys to the show notes for this episode. Regardless of the sledging merits of the eight canines, the expedition was skint and Coke couldn't pay their passage further south. The captain of the whaling vessel slated to carry them to Deception Island confiscated Wilkins' cine camera in lieu of the monies already owing. An Antarctic expedition that ends in Uruguay is a temperate region's tragedy and whaling magnate, Lars Christensen, an ice coffee regular and whom I missed mentioning in episodes about the ITAE as one of the investors for whom the Endurance, knee, the Polaris, was first built as a pleasure vessel to carry tourists north and from which they might shoot polar bears, took up Wilkins' offer to film his whaling operations, securing this half of the BIAE their berths aboard one of his southbound ships. Lester and Bagshaw arrived separately in late November, Bagshaw geologising about the Deception Island shores while Lester set up some tidal measurements, and both taking opportunities to head into the Brantsfield Strait aboard whale chasers. The Solstreif, carrying Wilkins and Cope, arrived at Neptune's Bellows on Christmas Eve 1920, but couldn't enter the Deception Island caldera for four days due to gusting winds that made the transit through the narrow entrance too treacherous to risk. Wilkins spent some time filming the whaling and whale rendering operations at Whalers Bay, as agreed with Lars Christensen. Cope adapted the expedition into a whaleboat and dog sledge based extension of Nordenfeld's work along the Weddell Sea coast, proposing they use the hut at Snowhill Island as winter quarters and aiming to fill in the blanks between the Swedes' furthest extent south and Shackleton's Caird coast to the east. Wilkins put his camera gear up as security against payment for passage further south aboard the whale chasers. The trio of chasers on which the BIAE distributed themselves and their gear didn't make it further into the Weddell Sea than Hope Bay at the tippity northern top of the Antarctic Peninsula, where the sea ice precluded further progress, or even a landing at the site of Gunnar Andersen's dismal winter with the Hope Bay hopefuls. Unable to land stores, proposed by the captain of the Odd One, which is the ship's name, required they set up winter quarters on the western side of Graham Land and to cross over to the eastern side by sledge and continue Nordenfeld's work that way. The three whale chasers sailed the expedition down the Gerlash Strait, where the whalers wanted to go in the first place, and landed the party at what came to be known as Waterboat Point in Paradise Harbour on the 12th of January. The Norwegians assured Cope they would find ready access to the Waddell Sea side of the peninsula from there, but looking at the water on three sides of the headland and the steep, snow and glacier-covered mountains on the 4th, the explorers felt this an overly optimistic assessment, but with no funds for buying the maritime support they needed, and whalers eager to whale likely to lose patience with any further calls for charity, they were stuck where they were landed. The whale chasers prams and lifeboats set to getting the stores, equipment and 50 sacks of coal purchased on tick from the whaling enterprises ashore. Waterboats were vessels about the length of a large whaler, but with a flat bottom to the hull. They were essentially barges for the collection and transport of fresh water. Placed under a meltwater outlet, they were left to fill their large internal volume until, sitting low in the water, they were towed back to where the freshwater was needed. 
usually some steam-powered machinery operation engaging in the disassembly and rendering of whales. Paradise Harbour and the nearby Wilhelmina Bay, offering large sheltered spaces close to large numbers of feeding rorquals, served as anchorages for factory vessels. The waterboats were built on site and, being rubbish for work in open waters, discarded when the whalers moved on. Many sites around the Antarctic Peninsula feature the remain of waterboats, now considered historical sites instead of the trash they comprised when people decided they constituted more trouble to remove than they were worth. It was one such discarded waterboat that earned the tiny headland, actually an island as it separated from the coast by water on the high tide, its name and the eponymous boat, while no longer watertight and therefore abandoned some eight years earlier by the factory ship Nico, provided an adequate sleeping shelter. You can't stand up inside a waterboat's enclosed volume, but it will keep the weather off, as many a fur seal currently at Deception Island can attest. The BIAE lined the waterboat's keel with senegrass and reindeer hides to bring it level, the boat's ribs serving to prevent the insulation redistributing itself, and laid out their reindeer hide sleeping bags. Using the very basic carpenter's toolbox, geological hammers and a saw, and wood supplies to hand, packing cases and some framing timber donated by the Norwegians, Lester, a seafarer and therefore good at everything, began work building a living area above the stern of the boat, giving standing space and protecting the boat's hatch from the weather. A galley featuring a coal, supplemented with blubber, stove, made out of an old oil drum and the smaller primer stove and a table at which to eat or read, and a vestibule giving room for storage of and dressing into and out of outdoor gear. Much of the outer walls comprised packing cases still packed with their goods, offering some insulation. The double layer roof featured a centigrass in a core to help trap heat. Without glass, the interior would have proved depressingly dark, but for Lester's improvising with canvas food bags. Drawn tight across gaps between packing cases, these let in enough light to work by, but also let out enough heat that instead of being depressingly dark, the hut proved depressingly cold. Spare eiderdowns nailed to the walls of the lounge area conjured Bagshaw's idea of a padded cell in a lunatic asylum. Photographs capture this ramshackle affair as being well shabby in comparison to the prefabricated huts, in some cases still standing, elsewhere around the Antarctic coast, but it did the job of keeping the worst of the weather at bay. If I ever get around to my long-held ambition of replicating one of the historic huts as a cubby house come office, it's the Waterboat Point Waterboat Hut that I'll give precedence to, at least in the first pass as a proof of concept project. It's small enough to at least minimise the risk of personal injury through carpentry incompetence and divorce for acting on stupid ideas. Pemmican, baked beans, biscuits and creme de menthe flavour boiled sweets and tea comprise the stores. With cutlery numbering among the many things the expedition didn't bring south, meals were eaten with the fingers, the first one ashore comprising Waddell seal steaks with fried liver and onions. Even living on board ship in this area, I know full well that even on a finite timeline, everything eventually smells of penguin shit. Waterboat Point, featuring rookeries of gentoo and chinstraps at the time, there's only gentoos there now, featured a thick covering of guano, 
And while the human nose can damp down a response during extended exposure, that's not the same as switching the response off. I don't like to think about the galley and mess room hygiene, or what it might be like to take every meal to the accompaniment of the olfactory equivalent of Lou Reed's metal machine music. No one died of penguin hepatitis, so I guess they must have managed okay on that front. By the 17th of January, with the dwellings established and the stores sorted and stowed, the regular work schedule kicked in. Meteorological observations every four hours using a Stevenson screen set on the highest point of the headland. Early snowshoe traverses up the nearest mountain, named Mount Lunch Ho, because of a meal they ate near its summit, revealed more mountains beyond, rather than the optimistically hoped for plateau. So the whaleboat came into service as the expedition began seeking other paths to the other side of the peninsula. Carving icebergs in Paradise Harbour caused some concern as the waterboat-based hut lay only a few feet above the high tide mark most days, and one foot clear during the spring high tides, which occur twice a month, as the name doesn't imply. While the boat lay in state for eight years, there's no readily identifiable pattern to the carving of icebergs, and each successive report from glacial carving caused the members of the party to quickly get their eyes on any approaching waves to assess whether or not everyone and everything comprising the BIAE was about to get wretchedly wet and miserably cold and probably die, and with good cause. Some iceberg caused waves lapping against the waterboat's bow. Cope and Wilkins headed up the steep slopes to the north of the headland to see what access might lie beyond previous climbs. Fuck all, as it turns out. Ice cliffs didn't seem too daunting a prospect until they found themselves at the top of them with a storm closing in, at which point they deemed the cliffs too steep for an attempt at backtracking. Trying to find a space they might dig themselves into the snow and ride out the blizzard, operating in zero visibility and numbing cold, a cornice collapsed under Wilkins, sending both roped-in men tumbling into space. They hit the snow slope below at pace and tumbled downhill a long distance, unable to arrest their descent with their ice axes until Cope went down a crevasse. The rope arrested his fall, inverted and suspended by the loop around his hips, but crushed the wind out of his anchor, Wilkins, who'd already shot across the crevasse and who regained consciousness to the sound of Cope's calls for help. Wilkins, still operating in the open and a storm, planted his ice axe as a dead man and used his shirt tail as an additional rope by which to lower his sheath knife to Cope. Cope used the knife to gain leverage by which to right himself and then to cut steps in the ice wall to aid in his own extraction from the crevasse, its depths shrouded in darkness. They found their way back to Waterboat Point through the crevasse maze that gravity landed them in and didn't try crossing the peninsula again. Wilkins never entirely shook off his first catastrophic foray into mountaineering, his efforts thereafter focusing exclusively on maritime and aviation projects. Forays in the 16-foot whaleboat along the Dunkirk coast, named after that Belgian lieutenant who wouldn't eat his seal meat aboard the Belgica, and whose remains remain on the seabed somewhere nearby, indicated the peninsula comprised a contiguous coastline and not islands allowing communication between the Weddell Sea and the Galash Strait. Crossing the mountains, ranging from two to 6,000 feet in height, was the only way west. 
Cope and Wilkins' experience indicated the dog sledge option wasn't a starter from anywhere they knew about, and crossing to the Waddell Sea with only what might be carried on their backs didn't offer much scope for further exploration once they achieved that coastline, 40 miles away as the crow flies, but as much used to them as though it were 40 miles as the penguin flight. Rain through late February leaked through gaps in the waterboat's decking, drenching the sleeping bags, but eventually swelling the wood enough to seal the worst of the gaps. The rain made waterboat point an unpleasant mire as hundreds of years of accumulated guano came back from its desiccated winter slumber to re-announce itself with its sulphurous odours and underfoot slipperiness. The beauty of Paradise Harbour, in spite of the challenges posed by Waterboat Point, was not lost on Bagshaw, who made a diary entry after taking the meteorological observations one midnight. It was so calm, and the surrounding land was so extraordinarily appealing that it gripped my heart in a strange way. The Antarctic has a charm of its own, which makes one forget its bad days and almost love it. Perhaps it is only the fascination of a wild, lonely country, but it has a poignant appeal that one never forgets. On the 26th of February, Lester, Wilkins and Cope headed out in the whaleboat to look for a whaling ship to carry the expedition leadership north. Forty nautical miles along the coast, they came upon a whaler but the Norwegian captain wanted nothing to do with Cope's endeavours and refused to help. Carrying on their search, strong winds chopped up the sea surface in Andvord Bay, making Cope and Lester too seasick to be of much use. Wilkins, struggling with the tiller in the rising seas, couldn't move forward to work the sheets or halyards and ended up hacking away what rope he could reach with his sheath knife to prevent the boat running headlong into a leeshore glacial terminus under full sail. The second time, Wilkins' knife helped save the day. Even under bare poles, the boat, shipping water no one was bailing, was in danger of being dashed into the vertical ice face by the waves. The boat grounded on a rocky reef, receiving a hole just below the gunwale. Normally not much of a problem, but with the boat already sitting low in the water, this was close to a death knell. Cope and Lester revived from their nausea by the existential threats they faced, bunged the hole with sail canvas and turfed anything they could get a hand to over the side to lighten the boat. A current carried them clear of the glacier tongue and everyone thanked hindsight bias for their salvation. As the waters pushed the boat past a small inlet, Wilkins spotted a whaler sheltering within but couldn't turn the boat and beat back toward it under the circumstances. Fortunately for the trio, someone on the whaler spotted the whaleboat shoot past their haven and sent a motor launch to their aid. The captain of the whaler, the Birk, agreed to carry the BIAE back to Deception Island. Bagshaw spent an uneventful week alone at the hut as his companions made their 90 mile outing in the whaleboat, continuing the scientific observation series and tending to the eight dogs. Grease Ice the first stage of sea ice formation, began forming on the waters of Paradise Harbour before his companions returned aboard the Björk. Cope, figuring it would be easier to raise further funds and extend the reach of the BIAE if people remained in Antarctica for the winter, wanted to leave Wilkins, Bagshaw and Lester at Waterboat Point while he returned to Montevideo to begin fundraising.
Wilkins wanted shot of the BIAE and refused to play the role of living collateral for Cope. Lester and Bagshaw wanted to stay on, and Cope was eager to let them. Wilkins agreed on the basis that another whaler should visit Waterboat Point in two weeks, at the very tail end of the whaling season, to ensure the young men were resolute. Bagshaw continued the tradition of Antarctic stalwart's stoic understatement when he wrote, It was strange and a little frightening to be left as we were. Two people alone on a vast continent, equal in area to Europe and Australia combined, with a year to pass before we were due to see any other human beings again. And then a factory ship, the Graham, carrying the captain of the Sven Fern 1, the same captain that carried Bagshaw south of Deception Island, stopped by on the 5th. Captain Anderson, unable to persuade them to come north, would seek them out at the earliest opportunity when the fleet came south again, and Lester and Bagshaw were much touched that this taciturn man working in a hard industry felt compelled to seek after their safety in this manner. Wilkins, waiting on Deception Island for the expected return of Lester and Bagshaw, was surprised when the last of the whaling fleet returned to the caldera without the Brits some weeks later. Just in case you didn't dislike Cope enough already, Lester and Bagshaw never had the opportunity to ditch on their sojourn after the Graham checked in on them shortly after the departure of the Bjorn because Cope threatened the head of the whaling station with bureaucratic difficulties in renewing whaling licences if any vessel went anywhere near the camp. Cope wasn't in a position to make good on such threats, but the whalers couldn't know that, and the general Norwegian pragmatism that led them to pay licence fees and duties to British authorities for no good reason other than it was probably easier than resisting, saw them hold to Cope's similarly spurious injunction. Cope made his way to the Falklands, where he was a pain in the ass to the locals, until someone found him a berth home aboard a Scottish steamer in return for peeling potatoes. I'm not even sure he was good at that, Wilkins later commented. Cope never tried to get another expedition up and running, and I can't find much information about him after he departed the Falklands. Wilkins, on the other hand, will be back in the series before you know it, and with considerable staying power. Meanwhile, back at Waterboat Point, Lester continued to make improvements to the accommodations, applying a bolt of canvas Wilkins cadged from the Norwegians to make covers for the waterboat and the dog kennels, applying seal oil to the fabric to render it waterproof. His work proved sound as the accommodations experienced no further leaks, even under the heaviest rain or the wettest snowstorm. Bagshaw laid in the larder for the winter. Having grown fond of the birds during his natural history observations at Waterboat Point, he didn't enjoy killing penguins, but he took scientific measurements and observations as he went, helping assuage his conscience that they died for a higher purpose as well as for his food, and stuck to the unpleasant task until 200 of the little carcasses lay in hand. Then he started on the seals, laying in a large stock to feed both humans and dogs, Cigarettes were one store not in short supply, though matches by which to light them were hard to strike a light. The boxes of matches Cope had cajoled out of some second-rate match manufacturer were not sealed in tins, and the striker patches on the damp sides of the boxes became an unusable mush after a couple of successful strikes. Bagshaw noted that while this caused only inconvenience in the boat hut, 
out on a sledging journey, an inability to make fire at will might prove the downfall of an entire team. The matchheads deteriorated over time, and the oaths and profanity emanating from the waterboat as match after match was tried and found wanting against the thwarts above their sleeping bags would have revealed the identity of the midnight meteorologist trying and failing to get their hurricane lamp working had anyone else been nearby to bear witness. Bagshaw noted the reports from Charcot's expeditions, made most recently and based on data collected in close proximity to Waterboat Point, provided much in the way of useful information that helped the pair prepare for the coming months of darkness and storms. One of the dogs broke its chain and avoided capture for several days. She was found in early April, drowned, when the remnant chain caught on a rock just above the low tide and she couldn't escape the rising waters. Her death brought a pall over the camp that the rosy sunsets of the Antarctic twilight couldn't obliterate and the pair spent a day altering the dog's accommodations to guard against a similar accident befalling their remaining companions. As the light departed and the weather shifted gears, the cold took its toll, both men experiencing frostbites and frustrations. Ink froze in the ink pot. The general dampness of their site precluded the use of finesco, but the leather sea boots and felt camp boots available to them didn't protect their feet from the cold when wet, and their footwear was wet most of the time. The alarm clock only functioned in the hours it wasn't needed, and any food not eaten immediately on serving out of the pot quickly froze into an unmanageable lump. On that front, the two took turns in the cooking, alternating their day in the galley with their duties as meteorologist. Bagshaw tended to mince seal meat and seal liver together, and Lester usually opted either for penguin a la ordinaire, boiled penguin, or penguin a la pemmican, a mixed hoosh of penguin bits and pemmican chunks that helped hide the taste of the oily, gamey penguin meat. A single creme de menthe sweet served as dessert most evenings. As with many overwinterers to this day, fresh fruit was the biggest cause of culinary heartache at Waterboat Point. On the 18th of April, his 20th birthday, Bagshaw broke the penguin and seal diet streak with a Christmas pudding he'd brought along in his personal belongings. As good as dinner at the Criterion came his variety-deprived conclusion, the Criterion being a flash restaurant in Piccadilly Circus. Cigars all round after dinner. The pinnacle of luxury at Waterboat Point during their year and a day-long stay. Well, Lester's birthday on the 25th of September was a pretty special affair too. Fried sardines, stewed dried apples and another Christmas pudding, the pair getting pissed on the brandy sauce. I realise a large proportion of iced coffee listeners are from nations outside the Commonwealth and likely don't have any idea how miserable a treat the traditional British Christmas pudding is. Christmas pudding, or plum pudding, is made out of suet, the thick layers of chalky fat from around the kidneys and loins of a cow or sheep, and dried fruit. Soaked in brandy and held together by egg, the whole disaster is boiled, steamed and then aged in a cheesecloth sack for at least a month and sometimes a year. Better if left until after you die and someone else throws away the mess you made, really. Some people assert it's the alcohol that makes plum pudding last, 
but it's actually that it's the dessert equivalent of Terry Pratchett's dwarf bread. No one eats it if there's anything else edible on the go, and even then, no one I've met ever goes back for seconds or sneaks portions from the leftovers during the night. It's a substrate for brandy sauce or custard, and that people sometimes set it on fire is a mark of how poorly it's regarded in culinary circles. That it's every bit as edible after immolation on the altar of better sweet treats as before just acts as a reminder of why you shouldn't eat it in the first place. In 2017, conservators of the Antarctic Heritage Trust uncovered a hundred-year-old relative of the Christmas pudding, the traditional British fruitcake at the huts at Cape Adair. Close examination revealed it to be as inedible a century after packaging as when it was first made. Maybe after half a year of alternating meals of minced seals and penguins, I'd think Christmas pudding was something worth getting excited about, but I've never been that bored, and I hope to never get there. Culinary boredom aside, with no scope to head away from the coast and the supplies of fresh meat living there, Lester and Bagshaw never experienced scurvy. The coal stove features in Bagshaw's account almost as a third, extremely truculent and hard to fire up member of the team. In the winter months, it went out with monotonous regularity. In the spring, as temperatures rose and the men, at that point acclimated to the cold, didn't need it to burn too hot, it burnt with a ferocity that regularly saw the bottom corrode and fall out, necessitating fire grate replacements using the dwindling stores of ice pick heads and other sundry metallic stuff that might have been useful if they'd gotten off waterboat point, but which was otherwise useless until something metal was needed because the stove was inhabited by a Throckmorton. The penguin nesting observations highlight the Gentoo's stone thieving, but make no mention of the rape, necrophilia and other diversions from the cloacal kiss that is the penguin equivalent of consensual P and the V, found so shocking by Murray Levick that he felt he could only record them in ancient Greek to preserve the delicate sensibilities of those not privy to an education in the classics. Either Gentoos and Chinstraps are less desperate to inseminate something than a Dailies, or Lester and Bagshaw didn't notice anything unusual, or they noticed unusual mating behaviour and never reported it. Or, maybe Levick was making shit up. Hmm. Area man projects sexual frustration and secret desires onto penguin population. Nah. Rub some ochre on it. Heavy snow caused the vestibule roof to sag, and the warmth within caused the snow to melt and drip inside. With weather, scarcity of wood and dearth of nails precluding a second ground-up attempt at architecture, Lester used an oar as a prop to prevent the roof collapsing, and he collected the drips in pannikins until he had enough for the single thorough wash the pair experienced in their year at Waterboat Point. Midwinter day, celebrated with a tin of baked beans, each bean being individually savoured, some marmalade and two creme de menthe sweets, marked a gear shift in the scientific routine, with met obs increasing from four hourly to two hourly. The gramophone, its box hinges donated to the outer hut door, cranked out the few records from the small stash that the men could bear to hear regularly, some of the more melancholy tunes of longing causing them too much homesickness. Reading habits, on the other hand, focused on authors such as Dickens and Thackeray, whose prose transported the pair home to good food and the company of friends and family. The dogs, good company though they proved, tired Lester and Bagshaw to Waterboat Point more than their tractive capacity should have done. 
While I derided the mongrels as less than the best possible sledging material when compared to those carried south by other expeditions, they at least survived the winter at 64 degrees south and could have probably pulled the sledge well enough if the terrain allowed. But with seven hungry mouths to feed through the dark months, Lester and Bagshaw couldn't even take the whaleboat out for overnight excursions to better geologise the Dunco coast. Lester began a tidal observation series, establishing a datum and a tide pole from which to make hourly observations through their final month at Waterboat Point. Floating ice put the pole in regular danger of being knocked over, but the resolute resident members of the BIAE tended their instrument and their observational duties assiduously, in spite of their clothing and equipment coming to the end of their useful lives, the year of constant use in extreme circumstances taking its toll on even the best-made pieces of kit. Bagshaw, possessing the only pair of waders, regularly entered the water to make adjustments to the set of the instrument or to fend off ice that might cause trouble on the rising tide. Twice, he piss-bolted out of the water due to the presence of a leopard seal using the locale as home and larder for a spell. Penguins began making new nests at Waterboat Point in November, but the eggs came later than Charcot's observations further south at Peterman Island suggested, the first being laid on the 29th of the month. Bagshaw painted numbers on boulders close to the hut to aid in mapping the nearby nests for his natural history documentation, and his notes tinged with mentions of eagerness for enough eggs to come about that he and Lester might enjoy an omelette to ease the monotony of their diet without disrupting the accumulation of scientific data, are comprehensive and feature some humour as penguins are impossible not to anthropomorphise, try as a scientist might. After the first penguin egg omelette, sardines, baked beans and other rare luxuries took a back seat to eggy adventures in the galley. The Norwegian whaling interests at Deception Island experienced difficulty selling their oil reserves during the northern summer, and this caused some concern over Lester and Bagshaw's fate. The Norwegians weren't obliged to return south if there wasn't commercial gain in it for them, and no one felt especially optimistic about how the pair might fare if left on the Dunco coast for a second winter. Shackleton volunteered his next expedition services, due for their own ice coffee episode next month, if no one else was heading south in 1922, but the oil bottleneck eased and the Norwegians were in a position to profit from further Antarctic whaling. Lester and Bagshaw didn't learn of how close their lives came to being entrusted to British charity, a fickle beast at the best of times, until long after the situation resolved itself. Cope certainly never got a vessel together, but I think even by the time he left Waterboat Point, no one seriously believed he ever would. On the 18th of December, the Graham brought Captain Anderson back to Waterboat Point bringing relief both in terms of definite knowledge that the outside world hadn't forgotten or forsaken the BIAE overwinterers, and in that no bad news arrived from home with the Norwegians. Captain Anderson, expressing fatherly concern for the young men, wanted to take them north immediately, but Lester and Bagshaw felt they couldn't abandon their data series while still shy of a full year of observations. The good captain agreed to return in two or three weeks, giving them time to complete their year on site, pack their equipment and mothball their winter quarters. Taken aboard the Graham, Lester and Bagshaw enjoyed bread and coffee, inspiring a request for any vegetables the crew could spare them. 
wonders such as onions, sardines, potatoes, butter, pineapple, sausages, cheese, and a hoggett carcass were thrust upon them by the eager whalers. The galley in the hut wasn't a great fit for such variety in staple foods, and several meals that might have proved wondrous when prepared under more propitious circumstances turned out edible and interesting for their variation from the mean and little more, causing some frustration. Midsummer's Day and Christmas were marked with the waterboat point equivalent of a sumptuous feast, the novelty of variety making up for the preparation shortcomings as best it could. The Graham left behind a year's worth of mail and carried north messages for radio relay back to Britain, and also took the dogs, easing the daily workload and taking pressure off the local seal population. The Norwegians felt the seven Muttleys would find ready homes among the whaling fleet's boats. Both men put in solid days of effort, sorting and packing their equipment, specimens and personal effects, while still doing their best to maintain the observation schedule and camp duties. Bagshaw made a plain table survey of their headland and surroundings, an enterprise made difficult by penguins jogging the tripod through their transits, fights and general inquisitiveness. The Norwegians returned to collect the BIAE on the evening of the 13th of January 1922. While Bagshaw emptied the water storage, kettle and slop bucket, Lester packed all loose items into the waterboat and nailed the hatch cover down. The stove was left set for lighting should anyone take up residence once more, and finally they nailed the outer door shut. Bagshaw recorded the departure as a melancholy one. Lester seemed quite upset and we both felt miserable as we watched the hut disappear from sight, left to the mercies of the wind and weather. We had pleasant times there, as well as dull ones, and it had been our protector against the weather and even against death. The pair spent three months with the Norwegians at Nansen Island as the whalers whaled, and then headed north aboard the Sven Fern 1 with Captain Anderson. Bagshaw's final passage in Two Men in Antarctica warrant recounting, as I think he speaks to a common experience among people who travel to the ice. I paced the deck in the evening with most conflicting emotions, impatience at the thought that it would be two months before I should see my people at home. Kaleidoscopic recollections of adventures, humorous and dangerous, at Waterboat Point and while hunting whales. Affection for the kind and comradely help of the whalers, and that queer and almost unaccountable reluctance at leaving the Antarctic to which, ever since I was a small boy, I had been attracted and which still exercised its strange influence over me. In a paragraph titled Retrospect, he recounts, Before I left England, I was told by an explorer friend that when once I had been to the Antarctic, I should, in spite of the discomforts, dangers and difficulties, fall under the spell of its fascination and all my life wished to return. Many times since, I have realised that he was right. The Sven Fern 1 called at the Falklands and Montevideo before discharging its cargo of oil in Pensacola, Florida. Lester and Bagshaw stayed with the Sven Fern 1 all the way to its home port of Sundfjord, Norway, finally reaching England on the 16th of June. Wilkins was relieved to find his initial concerns at leaving Lester and Bagshaw at Waterboat Point were unwarranted, writing, 
If they had been boon companions with never a cross word, I would have brought them away at whatever cost. But they got along well together, quarrelling bitterly, yet never bearing any malice a few hours later. And any two men who can have an angry row in the morning and forget all about it by afternoon can get along anywhere for any length of time. In the opening chapter of his account of their year in Antarctica, Thomas Bagshaw praises Lester as one of the best, expressing gratitude for his positive attitude, for his tidy sailor's habits, which rubbed off on him, and for teaching him the value of holding on to every bent nail and tag of string that came into his hands, such trifles often proving useful at a site where the nearest hardware store lay many hundreds of nautical miles away. In one of the most moving passages of any account of companionship I've yet read, he encompasses his love of the man thus. Whenever I see a piece of sail canvas or a block and tackle, I always think of him, for he knew their mysteries. But my happiest memory will always be of his cheery good humour. On those dismal days when things had gone all wrong and we stared at each other in rueful dismay, a quizzical smile would creep over his face and expand into a grin so infectious that we would both burst into hearty laughter. His sense of humour never deserted him, even in the most trying moments, nor did it ever fail to infect me, and it helped us both through many an unpleasant experience. Troy and Abed in the boat hut. As mentioned at the start of this episode, Frank Debenham had to push Bagshaw to publish his account, and both Lester and Bagshaw felt they had little enough to say that they only conceded to Debenham's entreaties on the basis that their scientific data be appended to the text, which eventually went to press in 1939. Lester's authorship from the expedition only amounted to a series of corrections to Admiralty data in South Shetland's charts, based on his survey work, but he wasn't finished with the Antarctic and will feature in the series again. In his biography of Sir Hubert Wilkins, Simon Naisht characterised Lester and Bagshaw as displaying the boarding school stoicism and admirable stubbornness that built an empire. Guns, germs and steel might also have played a role in that whole empire deal, but I sort of get what he was going for, and think the props he gave to the two inexperienced people who went to the ice and succeeded where their leadership failed them was well warranted. Lester and Bagshaw done good. Waterboat Point was later occupied by Gabriel Gonzalez Videla Research Station, named after the president under whose leadership the Chileans expanded their ambitions in Antarctica to include occupation. Back to Wilkins' sheath knife, the unsung hero of the BIAE. Twice it came in handy, coming quickly to hand to provide the power of the inclined plane in piercing and severing, mechanical advantage helping overcome geographic perils. I don't spend time up glaciers, but I do spend time on and under the sea, and in both situations I want a knife close at hand and geared to the task expected of it. It only has to save the day once to make maintaining and carrying it for your entire life worthwhile. I don't want to have to deal with the frustration of not being able to cut or pierce something when I really, really need to do so, so I spend good coin on quality cutlery, look after it well, and make sure it's always somewhere I can get a hand to it and put it to use without thought or delay. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, I love Lester and Bagshaw's story. And as we approach the centenary of their year at Waterboat Point, the temptation to try and get funding to replicate their experience is almost overwhelming. 
Though I don't think I know anyone that I would inflict that on. Coops might give it a go, but I value our friendship too much to try. Paying respect this episode to my mother-in-law Pam, who's been a huge help in making a long-distance relationship work for me and her daughter, and for helping with births and child-rearing, and for being a good friend on top of that. Take care and appreciate your coffee, and ensure your knife is what you need and where you need it.